Chapter Ten, Part One of the History of Standard Oil, Volume Two by Ida Tarbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Two: Cutting to Kill. To know every detail of the oil trade, to be able to reach at any moment its remotest point, to control even its weakest factor. This was John D. Rockefeller's ideal of doing business. It seemed to be an intellectual necessity for him to be able to direct the course of any particular gallon of oil from the moment it gushed from the earth until it went into the lamp of a housewife. There must be nothing, nothing in his great machine he did not know to be working right. It was to complete this ideal, to satisfy this necessity, that he undertook late in the seventies to organize the oil markets of the world as he had already organized oil refining and oil transporting. Mr. Rockefeller was driven to this new task of organization not only by his own curious intellect, he was driven to it by that thing so abhorrent to his mind, competition. If, as he claimed, the oil business belonged to him, and if, as he had announced, he was prepared to refine all the oil that men would consume, it followed as a corollary that the markets of the world belonged to him. In spite of his bold pretensions and his perfect organization, a few obstinate oil refiners still lived and persisted in doing business. They were a fly in his ointment, a stick in his wonderful wheel. He must get them out, otherwise the great purpose would be unrealized. And so, while engaged in organizing the world's markets, he incidentally carried on a campaign against those who dared intrude there. When Mr. Rockefeller began to gather the oil markets into his hands, he had a task whose field was literally the world, for already in 1871, the year before he first appeared as an important factor in the oil trade, refined oil was going into every civilized country of the globe. Of the five and a half million barrels of crude oil produced that year, the world used five millions, over three and a half of which went to foreign lands. This was the market which had been built up in the first ten years of business by the men who had developed the oil territory and invented the processes of refining and transporting, and this was the market still further developed, of course, that Mr. Rockefeller inherited when he succeeded in corralling the refining and transporting of oil. It was this market he proceeded to organize. The process of organization seems to have been natural and highly intelligent. The entire country was buying refined oil for illumination. Many refiners had their own agents out looking for markets. Others sold to wholesale dealers or jobbers who placed trade with local dealers, usually grocers. Mr. Rockefeller's business was to replace independent agents and jobbers by his own employees. The United States was mapped out and agents appointed over these great divisions. Thus a certain portion of the Southwest, including Kansas, Missouri, Arkansas, and Texas, the Waters Price Company of St. Louis, Missouri, had charge of. A portion of the South, including Kentucky, Tennessee, and Mississippi, Chess Carley and Company of Louisville, Kentucky, had charge of. These companies in turn divided their territory into sections and put the subdivisions in the charge of local agents. These local agents had stations where oil was received and stored, and from which they and their salesmen carried on their campaigns. 
This system, inaugurated in the 70s, has been developed until now the Standard Oil Company of each state has its own marketing department, whose territory is divided and watched over in the above fashion. The entire oil-buying territory of the country is thus covered by local agents reporting to division headquarters. These report in turn to the head of the state marketing department, and his reports go to the general marketing headquarters in New York. To those who know anything of the way in which Mr. Rockefeller does business, it will go without saying that this marketing department was conducted from the start with the greatest efficiency in economy. Its aim was to make every local station as nearly perfect in its service as it could be. The buyer must receive his oil promptly, in good condition, and of the grade he desired. If a customer complained, the case received prompt attention, and the clause was found and corrected. He did not only receive oil, he could have proper lamps and wicks and burners, and directions about using them. The local stations from which the dealer is served today are models of their kind, and one can easily believe they have always been so. Oil, even refined, is a difficult thing to handle without much disagreeable odor and stain. But the local stations of the Standard Oil Company, like its refineries, are kept orderly and clean by a rigid system of inspection. Every two or three months an inspector goes through each station and reports to headquarters on a multitude of details, whether barrels are properly bunged, filled, stenciled, painted, glued, whether tank wagons, buckets, faucets, pipes are leaking, whether the glue trough is clean, the ground around the tanks dry, the locks in good condition, the horses properly cared for, the weeds cut in the yard, the time the agent gets around in the morning and the time he takes for lunch are reported. The price he pays for feed, for his horses, for coal, for repairs are noted. In fact, the condition of every local station at any given period can be accurately known at marketing headquarters, if desired. All of this tends, of course, to the greatest economy and efficiency in the local agents. But the standard oil agents were not sent into a territory back in the 70s simply to sell all the oil they could by efficient service and aggressive pushing. They were sent there to sell all the oil that was bought. The coal oil business belongs to us, was Mr. Rockefeller's motto. And from the beginning of his campaign in the markets, his agents accepted and acted on that principle. If a dealer bought but a barrel of oil a year, it must be from Mr. Rockefeller. This ambition made it necessary that the agents have accurate knowledge of all outside transactions in oil, however small, made in their field. How was this possible? The South Improvement Scheme provided perfectly for this, for it bound the railroad to send daily to the principal office of the company reports of all oil shipped, the name of shipper, the quantity and kind of oil, the name of consignee, with the destination and the cost of freight. Having knowledge such as this, an agent could immediately locate each shipment of the independent refiner and take the proper steps to secure the trade. But the South Improvement Scheme never went into operation. It remained only as a beautiful ideal, to be worked out as time and opportunity permitted. The exact process by which this was done it is impossible to trace. The work was delicate and involved operations of which it was wise for the operator to say nothing. It is only certain that, little by little, a secret bureau for securing information was built up, 
until it is a fact that information concerning the business of his competitors, almost as full as that which Mr. Rockefeller hoped to get when he signed the South Improvement Company contracts, is his today. Perhaps the best way to get an idea of how Mr. Rockefeller built up this department, as well as others of his marketing bureau, is to examine it as it stands today. First, then, as to the methods of securing information which are in operation. Naturally and properly, the local agents of the Standard Oil Company are watchful of the condition of competition in their districts, and naturally and properly they report what they learn. We ask our salesmen and our agents to keep their eyes open and keep us informed of the situation in their respective fields, a Standard agent told the Industrial Commission in 1898. We ask our agents, as they visit the trade, to make reports to us of whom the different parties are buying, principally to know whether our agents are attending to their business or not. If they are letting too much business get away from them, it looks as if they were not attending to their business. They get it from what they see as they go around selling goods. But there is no such generality about this part of the agent's or salesman's business as this statement would lead one to believe. As a matter of fact, it is a thoroughly scientific operation. The gentleman who made the above statement, for instance, sends his local agents a blank like the following to be made out each month. The local agent gets the information to fill out such a report in various ways. He questions the dealers closely. He watches the railway freight stations. He interviews everybody in any way connected with the handling of oil in his territory all of which may be proper enough. When, in the early eighties, Howard Page of the Standard Oil Company was in charge of the Standard Shipping Department in Kentucky, his agents visited the depots once a day to see what oil arrived there from independent shippers. A record of these shipments was made and reported monthly to Mr. Page. He was able to tell the Interstate Commerce Commission, in 1887, almost exactly what his rivals had been shipping by rail and by river. Mr. Page claimed that his agents had no special privileges, that anybody's agents would have been allowed to examine the incoming cars, note the consigner, contents, and consignee. It did not appear in the examination, however, that anybody but Mr. Page had sent agents to do such a thing. The Waters Pierce Oil Company of St. Louis once paid one of its Texas agents this unique compliment. We are glad to know you are on such good terms with the railroad people that Mr. Clem, an agent handling independent oil, gains nothing by marking his shipments by numbers instead of names. In the same letter the writer said, Would be glad to have you advise us when Clem's first two tanks have been emptied and returned, also the second two to which you refer as having been in the yard nine and sixteen days, that we may know how long they have been held in Dallas. The movement of tank cars enters into the cost of oil, so it is necessary to have this information that we may know what we are competing with. The superior, receiving the filled blanks, carefully follows them by letters of instructions and inquiries, himself keeping track of each dealer, however insignificant, in the local agent's territory, and when one out of line has been brought in, never failing to compliment his subordinate. But however diligent the agent may be in keeping his eyes open, however he may be stirred to activity by the prodding and compliments of his superiors, it is, of course, out of the question that he get anything like the full information the South Improvement Scheme ensured. 
what he is able to do is supplemented by a system which compares very favorably with that famous scheme and which undoubtedly was suggested by it. For many years independent refiners have declared that the details of their shipments were leaking regularly from their own employees or from clerks in freight offices. At every investigation made, these declarations have been repeated and occasional proof has been offered. For instance, a Cleveland refiner, John Teagle, testified in 1888 to the Congressional Committee that one day in 1883 his bookkeeper came to him and told him that he had been approached by a brother of the secretary of the Standard Oil Company at Cleveland, who had asked him if he did not wish to make some money. The bookkeeper asked how, and after some talk he was informed that it would be by his giving information concerning the business of his firm to the Standard. The bookkeeper seems to have been a wary fellow, for he dismissed his interlocutor without arousing suspicion, and then took the case to Mr. Teagle, who asked him to make some kind of an arrangement in order to find out just what information the Standard wanted. The man did this. For twenty-five dollars down, and a small sum per year, he was to make a transcript of Mr. Teagle's daily shipments with net price received for the same. He was to tell what the cost of manufacturing in the refinery was, the amount of gasoline and naphtha made, and the net price received for them, what was done with the tar, and what percentage of different grades of oil was made, also how much oil was exported. This information was to be mailed regularly to Box 164 of the Cleveland Post Office. Mr. Teagle, who at that moment was hot on the tracks of the Standard in the courts, got an affidavit from the bookkeeper. This he took with the money which the clerk had received to the secretary of the Standard Oil Company, and charged him with bribery. At first the gentleman denied having any knowledge of the matter, but he finally confessed and even took back the money. Mr. Teagle then gave the whole story to the newspapers, where it of course made much noise. Several gentlemen testified before the recent Industrial Commission to the belief that their business was under the constant espionage of the Standard Oil Company. Theodore Westgate, an oil refiner of Titusville, told the Commission that all of his shipments were watched. The inference from his testimony was that the Standard Oil Company received reports direct from the freight houses. Lewis Emery, Jr., of Bradford, a lifelong contestant of the Standard, declared that he knew his business was followed now in the same way as it was in 1872 under the South Improvement Company contract. He gave one or two instances from his own business experience to justify his statements, and he added that he could give many others if necessary. Mr. Gall of Montreal, Canada, declared that these same methods were in operation in Canada. When our tank cars come in, Mr. Gall told the Commission, the Standard Oil Company have a habit of sending their men, opening a tank car, and taking a sample out to see what it contains. Mr. Gall declared that he knew this a long time before he was able to get proof of it. He declared that they knew the number of cars that he shipped and the place to which they went, and that it was their habit to send salesmen after every shipment. Mrs. G. C. Butts, a daughter of George Rice, an independent refiner of Marietta, Ohio, told the Ohio Senate Committee, which investigated trusts in 1898, that a railroad agent of their town had notified them that he had been approached by a standard representative who asked him for a full report of all independent shipments, to whom and where going. 
the agent refused but said mrs butts we found out later that someone was giving them this information and that it was being given right from our own works a party writing us from the waters pierce office wrote that we had no idea of the network of detectives generally railroad agents that his company kept and that everything that we or our agents said or did was reported back to the managers through a regular network of detectives who were agents of the railroads and oil company as well but while the proofs the independents have offered of their charges show that such leaks have occurred at intervals all over the country they do not show anything like a regular system of collecting information through this channel from the evidence one would be justified in believing that the cases were rare occurring only when a not over-nice standard manager got into hot competition with a rival and prevailed upon a freight agent to give him information to help in his fight in nineteen o three however the writer came into possession of a large mass of documents of unquestionable authenticity bearing out all and more than the independents charge they show that the standard oil company receives regularly to-day at least from the railroads and steamship lines represented in these papers information of all oil ships a study of these papers shows beyond question that somebody having access to the books of the freight offices records regularly each oil shipment passing the office the names of the consignor and consignee the addresses of each and the quantity and kind of oil are given in each case this record is made out usually on a sheet of blank paper though occasionally the recorder has been indiscreet enough to use the railroad company's stationery the reports are evidently intended not to be signed though there are cases in the documents where the name of the sender has been signed and erased in one case a printed head bearing the name of the freight agent had been used the name had been cut out but so carelessly that it was easy to identify him these reports had evidently been sent to the office of the standard oil company where they had received a careful examination and the information they contained had been classified wherever the shipment entered was from one of the distributing stations of the standard oil company a line was drawn through it or it was checked off in some way in every other case in the mass of reports there was written opposite the name of the consignee the name of a person known to be a standard agent or salesman in the territory where the shipment had gone now what was this for copies of letters and telegrams accompanying the reports showed that as soon as a particular report had reached standard headquarters and it was known that a carload or even a barrel of independent oil was on its way to a dealer the standard agent whose name was written after the shipment on the record had been notified if you can stop car going to x authorized rebate to z name of dealer of three-quarters cent per gallon one of the telegrams reads there is plenty of evidence to show how an agent receiving such information stops the oil he persuades the dealer to countermand the order george rice when before the house committee on manufactures in eighteen eighty eight presented a number of telegrams as samples of his experience in having orders countermanded in texas four of these were sent out on the same day from different dealers in the same town san angelo mr rice investigated the cause and by letters from the various firms learned that the standard agent had been around threatening the trade that if they bought of me they would not sell them any more as he put it mrs butts in her testimony in eighteen ninety eight 
said that her firm had a customer in New Orleans to whom they had been selling from 500 to 1,000 barrels a month, and that the Standard representative made a contract with him to pay him $10,000 a year for five years to stop handling the independent oil and take Standard oil. Mrs. Butts offered as evidence of a similar transaction in Texas the following letter. Lockhart, Texas, November 30, 1894. Mr. Keenan, who is with the Waters Pierce people at Galveston, has made several visits and made us propositions of all kinds to get us out of the business. Among others, he offered to pay us a monthly salary if we would quit selling oil and let them have full control of the trade, and insisted that we name a figure that we would take and get out of the business, and also threatened that if we did not accept his proposition, they would cut prices below what oil cost us and force us out of business. We asked him the question, should we accept his proposal, would they continue to sell oil as cheap as we were then selling it? And he stated most positively that they would always advance a price at once should they succeed in destroying competition. J.S. Lewis and Company In the Ohio investigation of 1898, John Teagle of Cleveland, being upon his oath, said that his firm had had great difficulty in getting goods accepted, because the standard agents would persuade the dealers to cancel the orders. They would have their local man, or some other man, call upon the trade, and use their influence and talk lower prices, or make a lower retail price, or something to convince them that they'd better not take our oil, and I suppose to buy theirs. Mr. Teagle presented the following letter signed by a standard representative explaining such a countermand. John Fowler, Des Moines, Iowa, January 14, 1891. Hampton, Iowa. Dear Sir, our Marshalltown manager, Mr. Ruth, has explained the circumstances regarding the purchase and subsequent countermand of a car of oil from our competitors. He desires to have us express to you our promise that we will stand all expense provided there should be any trouble growing out of the countermand of this car. We cheerfully promise to do this. We have the best legal advice which can be obtained in Iowa, bearing on the points in the case. An order can be countermanded either before or after goods have been shipped, and in fact can be countermanded even if the goods have already arrived and are at the depot. A firm is absolutely obliged to accept a countermand. The fact that the order has been signed does not make any difference. We want you to absolutely refuse, under any circumstances, to accept the car of oil. We are standing back of you in this matter, and will protect you in every way, and would kindly ask you to keep this letter strictly confidential. Yours truly, E. P. Pratt Peter Schull of the Independent Oil Company of Mansfield, Ohio, testified before the same committee to experiences similar to those of Mr. Teagle. "'If I put a man on the road to sell goods for me,' said Mr. Shull, "'and he takes orders to the amount of 200 to 300 barrels a week, before I am able to ship these goods possibly, the Standard Oil Company has gone there and compelled those people to countermand those orders under a threat that, if they don't countermand them, they will put the price of oil down to such a price that they cannot afford to handle the goods.' In support of his assertion, Mr. Shull offered letters from firms he has been dealing with. The following citations show the character of them. Tiffin, Ohio, February 1, 1898. Independent Oil Company, Mansfield, Ohio. Dear Sirs, the Standard Oil Company 
after your man was here, had the cheek to come in and ask how many barrels of oil we bought and so forth, then asked us to countermand the order, saying it would be for our best. We understand they have put their oil in our next door and offered it at six cents per gallon at retail. Shall we turn tail or show them fight? If so, will you help us out any? Yours truly, Talbot and Son. Tiffin, Ohio, January 24, 1898. Independent Oil Company. Dear Sirs, I am sorry to say that a standard oil man from your city followed that oil car and oil to my place, and told me that he would not let me make a dollar on that oil, and was dogging me around for two days to buy that oil, and made all kinds of threats and talked to my people of the house while I was out, and persuaded me to sell, and I was in a stew what I should do, but I yielded and I have been very sorry for it since. I thought I would hate to see the bottom knocked out of the prices, but that is why I did it, the only reason. The oil was all right. I now see the mistake, and that is of getting two carloads coming in here inside of a week is more than the other company will stand. Yours truly, H. A. Eric. In case the agent cannot persuade the dealer to countermand his order, more strenuous measures are applied. The letters quoted above hint at what they will be. Many letters have been presented by witnesses under oath in various investigations showing that standard oil agents in all parts of the country have found it necessary for the last twenty-five years to act at times as these letters threaten. One of the most aggressive of these campaigns waged at the beginning of this war of exterminating independent dealers was by the standard marketing agent at Louisville, Kentucky, Chess Carley and Company. This concern claimed a large section of the South as its territory. George Rice of Marietta, Ohio, had been in this field for eight or ten years, having many regular customers. It became Chess Charlie and Company's business to secure these customers and to prevent his getting others. Mr. Rice was handicapped to begin with by railroad discrimination. He was never able to secure the rates of his big rival on any of the southern roads. In 1888, the Interstate Commerce Commission examined his complaints against eight different southern and western roads, and found that no one of them treated him with relative justice. Railroad discriminations were not sufficient to drive him out of the southwest, however, and a war of prices was begun. According to the letters Mr. Rice himself has presented, he certainly in some cases began the cutting, as he could well afford to do. For instance, Chess Carley and Company were selling water-white oil in September 1888 in Clarksville, Tennessee, at twenty-one cents a gallon, delivered in carloads. Export oil was selling in barrels in New York at that date at ten and five-eighth cents a gallon. Rice's agent offered at eighteen cents. The dealer to whom he made the offer, Armstrong by name, wished to accept, but, as he had been buying of Chess Carley and Company, went first to see them about the matter. He came back scared almost out of his boots, wrote the agent to Rice. Carley told him he would break him up if he bought oil of anyone else, that the Standard Oil Company had authorized him to spend $10,000 to break up any concern that bought oil from anyone else, that he, Carley, would put all his drummers in the field to hunt up Armstrong's customers and sell his customers' groceries at 5% below Armstrong's prices and turn all Armstrong's trade over to Moore, Bremiker & Company and settle with Moore, Bremiker & Company for their losses in helping to break Armstrong up, 
every thirty days. That if Armstrong sent any other oil to Clarksville, Tennessee, he, Carley, would put the price of oil so low in Clarksville as to make the party lose heavily, and that they, the Standard, would break up any one that would sell him Armstrong oil, and that he, Carley, had told Steg and Ryling the same thing. Did you ever? What do you think of that? Very soon after this, Chess, Carley, and company took in hand a Nashville firm, Wilkinson and Company, which was buying of rice. It is with great reluctance, they wrote, that we undertake serious competition with anyone, and certainly this competition will not be confined to coal oil or any one article, and will not be limited to any one year. We always stand ready to make reasonable arrangements with anyone who chooses to appear in our line of business, and it will be unlike anything we have done before if we permit anyone to force us into an arrangement which is not reasonable. Any loss, however great, is better to us than a record of this kind. And four days later they wrote, If you continue to bring on the oil, it will simply force us to cut down our price, and no other course is left to us but the one we have intimated. Wilkinson and company seem to have stuck for Rice's oil, for sixteen months later we find Chess, Carley and company calling on the agent of a railroad which was already giving the standard discriminating rates to help in the fight. The screw was turned, Mr. Rice affirms, his rate being raised fifty per cent in five days. Rice carried on his fight for a market in the most aggressive way, and everywhere he met disastrous competition. In 1892 he published a large pamphlet of documents illustrating standard's methods, in which he included citations from some seventy letters from dealers in Texas, received by him between 1881 and 1889, showing the kind of competition his oil met there from the Waters Pierce Oil Company, the Standard's Texas agents. A dozen sentences from as many different towns will show the character of them all. I have had wonderful competition on this car. As soon as my car arrived, the Waters Pierce Oil Company, who has an agent here, slapped the price down to $1.80 per case one-tenth. Oil was selling at this point for $2.50 per case, and as soon as your car arrived it was put down to $1.50, which it is selling at today. The Waters Pierce Oil Company reduced their prices on brilliant oil from $2.60 to $1.50 per case and is waging a fierce war. Waters Pierce Oil Company has our state by the throat, and we would like to be extricated. I would like to handle your oil if I could be protected against the Waters Pierce Oil Company. I am afraid if I would buy a car of oil from you, this company would put the oil way below what I pay and make me lose big money. I can handle your oil in large quantities if you would protect me against them. The Waters Pierce Oil Company has cut the stuffing out of coal oil and have been ever since I got in my last car. They put the price to the merchants at a dollar eighty cents per case. We have your quotations on oil. While they are much lower than what we pay, yet unless a carload could be engaged it would pay no firm to try and handle, as Waters Pierce Oil Company would cut below cost on same. The day your oil arrived here, their agent went to all my customers and offered their Yupian oil at ten cents per gallon in barrels and one dollar and fifty cents per case, and lower grades in proportion, and told them if they did not refuse to take the oil 
he would not sell them any more at any price, and that he was going to run me out of the business, and then they would be at his mercy. Now we think Waters Pierce Oil Company have been getting too high a price for their oil. They are able and do furnish almost this entire state with oil. They cut prices to such an extent when any other oil is offered in this state that they force the parties handling the oil to abandon the trade. Trace and hurry up car of oil shipped to you. We learn it is possible that your oil is sidetracked on the line, that Waters Pierce might get in their work. If we were to buy a car or more, the Waters Pierce Oil Company would manage to sell a little cheaper than we could and continue doing so until they busted me up. In regard to oil, we are about out now, and Waters Pierce have put their oil up again and quote us at the old price. Jobbers say when they take hold of another oil, they are at once boycotted by Waters Pierce Oil Company, who not only refuse to sell to them, but put oil below what they pay for it, and thus knock them out of the oil trade, unless they sell at a loss. If I find that I can handle your oil in Texas without being run out and losing money by this infernal corporation, the Waters Pierce Oil Company, I want to arrange with you to handle it extensively. I received verbal notice this morning from their agent that they would make it hot for me when my oil got here. This is the end of Chapter 10, Part 1, recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.